I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to The Turnaround. A show where I ask interviewers about interviewing. It's a production of MaximumFun.org, presented in partnership with the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, my pal Mark Marin. If you don't know who Mark Marin is, I'm surprised. Because there was a period there where he was the only subject in the arts and leisure sections of America's newspapers and magazines. Mark hosts the podcast WTF, which is an in-depth interview show. It started out mostly being about comedy, and comedy's still probably the biggest focus, but now it's about all kinds of things. He's had um, everyone from Neil Young to Barack Obama while Barack Obama was the president. And he records it in a carriage house behind his house. I mean, a literal garage. And it's just full of piles of books that he's gotten over the years and piles of other things. It's very, (laughs) very tightly packed. Uh, But I think, and I think Mark thinks too, that, that doing it in this weird place makes the interviews that he does more intimate. I think that, the, again, backloading this, because I'm not a planner, that there was a long time where my bathroom door didn't really close. And, you know, people would come over, you know, fairly pretty celebrity people. Yeah. And I'd hear them just trying to close that door. And I'm like, no, it's not going to. So I think that that was the beginning. If they went <laughs> to the bathroom before the interview, that was the beginning of the erosion of some sort of personal boundaries in a very real way. <laughs> um, he is uh, he's interviewed everybody. Now, I mean, I mentioned he literally interviewed the president, but after eight years of doing this, he still doesn't even really think of himself as an interviewer. I'm wary to call myself an interviewer. I can do that sometimes, and I do do that. But I think that what was starting to happen is I was just having people over, and, and usually it was initially like catching up. You know, what do you know? What do I know about you? Are you who I think you are? Like a lot of times I'm working against my assumptions. Anyway, Mark has had such incredible success, not just commercially. I mean, the show is one of the biggest names in podcasting, but also artistically. I I think he does something really special that very few people can do. I know that I've learned a lot from him. No one gets a better interview than Mark. Here's my conversation with the great Mark Marin. Mark Marin, welcome to The Turnaround. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. The Turnaround. Is this a, one of 900 Max Fun shows? Uh, I guess. <laughs> what, what is The Turnaround? I needed more podcasts, Mark. Well, where did you come up with that name? What is that name It's about? a nice Hank Mobley record that I like. And, uh, but I couldn't come up. I'm terrible at coming up with names. Hank Mobley. Um, well, one thing is, I've been on your show a couple of times before. Yeah. You don't even tell people that you're starting. Right. I, I thought we started right when we walked in. That was my assumption that everybody does it like that now. That's the power of me. You've had a, had a nationally syndicated radio show. Yeah. You've been on 10,000 people's radio shows and podcasts. Right. So you know how it works. You'd been on many people's podcasts, I'm sure, before you started your podcast, which was a long time ago. Not too many. Not there too weren't many. that many. There was a couple. You've probably been on, wait, had you been on Pardo's podcast? At that point, I, I don't think I was on Pardo's podcast till after I started a podcast. I don't think my knowledge of podcasting really happened until after, but I knew he was out there. You started. I knew a, Corolla was there. Was it? It was. Had Hardwick started when you started? No, he he came after. I think Rogan came after. The ones that were out there that I knew of 
comic-wise, well, there was Corolla, there was Kevin Smith, there was Pardo, there was Jimmy Dore. Mm-hmm. But that, in my memory, that's about all I knew. Maybe, well, I don't know, no, I don't think Benson yet, but I think Rogan and Chris came after. I don't believe you when you say that you thought that it just worked, that you start recording at the, without telling people, <laughs> and everyone just wanders in. Well, I, I think I, that was a choice, Mark. I'm not saying it's a tr- it was a trick. I think it was a choice. I don't see any reason not to do it that way. It, it became a habit for me because the people that I interview have to walk through my house. So I have to try not to talk too much about anything other than, do you want a coffee? Uh, do you need... You know, and that is good. Like, I'll make people tea sometimes. If I have to make them tea or coffee, then I have to be careful about talking too much. Um, you know, let them use the bathroom, help them down the stairs, you know, let them see my house. And then we get out there and I try to get the thing on. Sometimes I'll go out and turn it on before we get into the garage. So I'll turn on the thing just so everything happens organically, that they walk in, they have a reaction to the space, they sit down and they get comfortable. And I, I like that moment. There's a moment there uh, where people, they don't shift into being interviewed mode, right? Like the surprise, and I'm, and it just is, is a testament to how many people don't necessarily listen to the show before they come over, right? <laughs> but but that moment where they're like, "Wait, are we doing it and now?" Yeah, we've been doing it. So so then it makes it, you know, I'm backloading this because I'm not that I don't have that much foresight or plan that much. But there is a difference between a public personality's personality on and off mic. Right. So if, they, if 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 it's them, readj- you're getting adjusted or acclimating or, you know, having a reaction to what's happening. Um, you're kind of getting a more authentic, immediate thing there. Right. They're kind of, you know, what I mean. It's and not it comfortable also, necessarily. And it also, I think it's it put makes a context for the audience that's different. Um, I guess so. Yeah. Than sitting. I mean, like I think that's the reason why. You hear that moment so often on Radio Lab, the most like the opposite of your show in terms of the amount of production. Yeah. Like Radio Lab is the most intensely produced thing that exists. Mm-hmm. But often they will include that moment of, hold on, let me turn on the microphone, whatever. Oh, I dropped something. To remind you that he's human. Just, yeah, to make it feel like, <laughs> to make it feel like, to, even though it's so shinily buffed, to make it feel like a, uh, an intimate and sincere interaction, like a real thing. Yeah, well, that, uh, there's, see how much planning? They're like, we better throw a human moment in <laughs> to this massively produced thing we're doing so people don't think we're we're so nerdy that we we're not able to uh not be controlling of everything well their level of control over everything is profound and their level of nerdiness is profound they're they, very they, human they kind of go hand in, my, in hand in my experience very human sure i don't i know neither jad nor robert particularly well but i i know both of them and they're both very interesting very human guys Right, but the the work, you know, the work. Right. The it's controlling. Tight. It's tight. Tight. It's tight. Look, my producer is a very sort of uh, overworking, you know, anal dude who's meticulous. But look what he's dealing with. The raw goods are messy. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever wonder what it would be like to do your show if it wasn't in your house? Kind of, but... Because you've done, I mean, you did radio for years. You know what it's like. 
I do, and I can focus on you, but there there is something about from you know what it does for me personally. That you know, in having people over, having them, you know, making them comfortable, making them a coffee, showing them the the deaf black cat on the back deck if it's there, you know, having them react to the environment, then coming in the like, there, it actually serves as a uh, you know, come over and hang out thing. So I acknowledge that it's a job because I do a lot of them, and when I go out there and sit by myself and talk on the mic, I I know I have to do it, and we we do have to have a show up tomorrow, whatever. But there's something about the element of having someone over and having a conversation that that still keeps it sort of casual in my brain, like and sort of special and not work like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like you know for I did we're in my studio in my office now. It's a box. It is. But for years and years and years, I did my show from my house. I did it there once. Yeah, and. You know, one of the reasons that I would, like, get dressed for it is so that people would know that I wasn't going to murder them. Yeah. Like, you had the advantage of being, like, a public personality to some extent. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of, especially in the early days, a lot of the people who came on the show were familiar with you as a comic. Yeah. Um, You know, people who came on my show both hadn't heard it and had no fucking clue who I was. So, that was a huge, that was, like, a weirdly big part of my show experience, too. And I had weird experiences, like... I don't I don't remember whose publicist it was one time, but somebody came over with a publicist, which is normal. Like often when some people are doing rounds of publicity, they'll have a publicist from the network with them or whatever. And the woman who was the publicist, this was when I was in Koreatown, came to my front door. She's standing there with her with her person. I don't remember who it was. She goes, oh, you do your show here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm right upstairs. I'm on the seventh floor. And she says, it's kind of ghetto, isn't it? Mm. I was like, I live here. Yeah. <laughs> like, give yeah. me a fucking break. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a couple things. I, I don't know that wearing the fancy pants and shirts are, make you any less threatening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> number one. <laughs> number two. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a real issue at my house, too. I, I have to have a part-time assistant because I don't really want people in my house. Like, I have one bathroom, (laughs) you know, there's nowhere for people to sit. So when they come, if if I'm alone, that means I got to go out in the garage with the guest and anywhere from one to five people are in my house, just unmanaged. Now, I don't think that, you know, most people are bringing criminals over, but I don't know. And there's (laughs) not much to steal. But and I don't know what they're going to do. I just don't want them to let a cat out or whatever. The one bathroom thing is like really... Serious, like that was something that when I when I was doing the show out of my apartment, yeah, I realized does my bathroom always have to be clean? Well, I let go of that stuff. That you know that became that is sort of an issue, and I was sort of embarrassing. And when I was with the uh, not the woman I'm with now, with the last one, I was, there was plans to add on to the house primarily to accommodate guests, not just for the podcast, but just to have a space that was mine and hers. And then this other space where people could go to the bathroom and hang out. My wife had the same the same feeling about it. That's one of the reasons we ended up in an office. Well, that's well, yeah, because people coming into your private space is weird. But there was, I think that the again backloading this because I'm not a planner. That there was a long time where my bathroom door didn't really close, and you know people would come over 
you know, fairly pretty celebrity people. Yeah. And I'd hear them just trying to close that door. And I'm like, no, it's not going to. So I think that that was the beginning. If they went <laughs> to the bathroom before the interview, that was the beginning of the erosion of some sort of personal boundaries in a very real way. Okay. So we're way off base. But I think that there is something like when I moved into the studio, I was scared to lose the intimacy of someone as a guest at my house. Like that genuinely, I was worried about that. Yeah. And I do think it affects things. Like I, I think it's fine. It's, it hasn't been the end of my career or anything, but it, I think it was better when it was me and someone and they came over to my house and met my dog. I think so. I mean, I don't know for your show, but I don't see how that couldn't be true. I think you agree that my show is worse than ever, right? Yeah, it's terrible, all yeah. of them. Yeah. No, I, I don't know how. The, with me, over time, things have become integrated. It was always a part of the show that if Dennis was had a tool you know, running next door, I'd have to tell him to, you know, could he not do that? If there are dogs involved, sometimes there are airplanes, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, leaf blowers, doors are closing. A lot of times, you know, if I'm running out of time, I'm in my gym clothes. Uh, I do get nervous about my house lately because it seems to be heading into decrepitude. And, like, I find myself apologizing a lot for my house. But people seem to like it. Worrying some of those piles of records are structural. No, the records aren't the problem. In the garage, it's spider webs and, you know, unmoved books. You know, I've said lately that I'm worried that it's going to look like a, a kind of strange roadside attraction museum that that has not no upkeep has been you know just right. everything's slightly grimy like and the people the people that own it became elderly and it just started to accumulate yeah, curios just, yeah they just didn't pay attention to it and it's sort of like because i have these moments like i'm near one now where it's where, where are the spiders responsible for this because this yeah. is ridiculous <laughs> um but it is an old garage on, on some and i sometimes i worry about the floor and i don't know but my insecurity about my house and, and also the nature of moving through the house into the garage, I think, is invaluable to what I do. And I think <laughs> it just it is because I thought about it. Like I thought about renovating the garage, maybe putting a new floor in there because that floor is ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know why I make the decisions that I make. Right. And like yeah, put in, I put in those linoleum tiles in there to make it sort of like, a, I guess, sort of a 1950s uh, retro diner feel. I, do, I don't know what I had in mind, like some sort of a, a game room when I did it. But I did it long before I was going to do a podcast in there. But I made this decision to do these red and gray alternating tiles. That are, and then I put a, a carpet it was sort like of an this. American graffiti inspired. Yeah. But I, why? Well, why did I do that? You love driving cheeseburgers in the whole 1950s. Baby boomer lifestyle. I guess Letterman jackets. But, yeah, but it, it, like, I don't know why that would poodle be poodle skirts. Right? Why do you have all those poodle skirts on the wall? Why and am I wearing one question. now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the bigger question. Did you that's think the elephant in the room? That's the giant poodle in the room. Did you know what your show was going to be when you started your show? No, I didn't have no idea. It was all you know a, a flurry of panic and desperation. You know, we had been taken off the air in New York and we wanted to do a podcast because we knew that the medium was an option and, and we did segments you know WTF actually was supposed to be a thematic thing uh, it was lighthearted in a lot of ways we, we experimented with having a crew in the room one or two people we did short interviews we tried to do bits that were refillable we uh you know we did uh, phone interviews it was sort of a uh you know mishmash of uh radio ideas in a lot of ways but we knew we had freedom 
And when I moved out here, when you came over, and when I bought the wrong mic initially, and told me how to operate GarageBand, and I still do it exactly the same way. The two things you showed me how to do, like, how do I make it bigger? Well, you click on the little one. Oh, good. And I still do that, and every time I do that, I'm like, Jesse showed me how to do that. <laughs> which, which mics do I Because that's what you were like, I don't really use this anymore, but I think you can just, oh, there you go. And then you told me to get these mics, but I, originally I thought you said a Shure 57. So I bought a 57, and then I was mad at it because it was an SM7, big price difference, and yeah. also a much different mic. But then I got rid of that 57, and I shouldn't have because I just I bought another one to mic my guitar amp. Um, but they're only like 100 bucks. So, no, no idea. And until I got out here, it was still me talking and then me talking to somebody. But we had a third segment that was a comedy segment uh, using improvising people to do, you know, real or you know, the, the idea was Kaufman-esque in that. Is it a real guest or isn't it? And I like doing those. But that seemed to be something for another show over yeah, time. Audiences hate, audiences hate that unless they know that's what they're getting. That's I thought it was always great, that, though. That we, type of... I, I always enjoyed the shit. I, we used to do that on Jordan, Jesse, Go. Yeah. I remember one time we had uh, Neil Campbell and Paul Rust over, and uh, they were opposing candidates for president, and one of them was Bart Simpson, and the other one was the guy who wrote Look Who's Talking To. Uh-huh. And it's, it is like one of my most cherished memories. I think the audience hated it because they felt like they were being tricked. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, they believed it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like, we're thinking, how could you possibly believe that we brought Bart Simpson, a fictional character? Well, yeah, people are weird. But, like, they feel like it's deceptive. Well, they have a blind they side. They don't feel comfortable with it enough to laugh. Well, we and did they're once. like, well, do a, do a show that's this. Like, that's, you know, if you want Sc- to do Scott, that. Does, Scott does that sure, on comedy, right. comedy Bang Bang. It's because yeah, the audience knows that that is what the show is. Yeah, we did some crazy ones that were really close to the bone, that but were really is, hard to tell. But this is about interviewing. So when did you decide, oh, okay, I guess that what this show is is an interview show. Not that it's exclusively an interview show, but that is what the show is about. Yeah, I don't know that I ever framed it quite like that. I, I still feel like they are conversations. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm wary to call myself an interviewer. I can do that sometimes, and I do do that. But I think that what was starting to happen is I was just having people over. And, and, and usually it was initially like catching up, you know, what do, you know, what do I know about you? Are you who I think you are? Like a lot of times I'm working against my assumptions. We all make these assumptions about people. And some of these people I knew for decades and I'd never had a conversation with. So as those things be- became resonant with me personally and started to function for me as, as a, a real um, kind of like – spiritually nourishing thing to have conversations with people and also to make amends with people and also to reconnect with the comedy community. I felt like I was, you know, kind of like in, in, you know, out off the grid and I was very depressed at the beginning, but it became sort of a conversation show and it became really, the conversations were relative to my respect or disrespect for that person. And also primarily like, to like, are you who I think you are, and convince me otherwise? <laughs> well, I think yeah. I mean, I think that is like one of your one of your top moves, so to speak. Yeah, and I don't mean you know it's not a transactional thing. Obviously, it's a very sincere and uh, 
uh, open-hearted thing. Mm-hmm. But like one of your moves is essentially like a kind of challenge yeah. to the guest. Like, it used to be more, yeah. Like, all right, well, I think you're this. Yeah. What do you say? It's kind of like that. I don't, and, it, and it's weird because what I've learned over time is those perceptions are always limited. And and if there are people that you know from their work, that you're manufacturing almost all of it, other than some sort of innate sense of who they are beyond their work, which is is very small. It's a, it's a, it's just a kernel of a of a of, of a humanity thing that you're making assumptions based on their music or the roles they play or the comedy they do or what they've written or whatever. And and you you build a person in your head. I mean, that's what we all do. That's how we believe things. That's how we develop relationships with celebrities or public people. Is that you build this person that that has given you this information, and the information is not an hour's worth of information. It's this weird assumption, uh, and I think that you can see the person in there. So I think that's sort of what I'm trying to do. And I'm, I a lot of times my instincts are are wrong. They're mostly wrong, but they're not wrong in the sense that, like, I misread somebody. They're just extremely limited to my, you know, to my idea of who they are. I think a lot of times, especially when someone is particularly good at being a famous person or a public personality... God, I can't get around it. One of the things that they're good at, often, is presenting an idea of who they are that's simple enough that a lot of people can understand it without using having to use too much brain space. I don't think that's true. I think they're what, protecting what if, themselves. But well, but like uh, Anthony Bourdain or Guy Fieri, these are the th- people that I think of a lot. Both of those guys are roughly speaking celebrity chefs slash food guys. Yeah. Guy Fieri less of a chef than Anthony Bourdain, but both in the, in the same sphere in very different ways. Right. Yeah. But, like, literally for both of those guys, and I've never met either of those dudes. I bet Anthony Bourdain's probably been on your show, right? A couple times. Has Guy Fieri ever been on your show? Would you have Guy Fieri on your show? I don't know. Maybe. kind of interesting. I bet he's an interesting guy. But uh, both of those- He gets excited about food. He does. Especially, like, uh, cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of those guys, like, you could look at a caricature of one of those guys on the wall of a deli- and you have an idea of what their deal is almost immediately. Now, you don't have a deep idea of what their deal is, but you can understand like what their they have a public persona that is literally like written on their faces. You know, like literally the frosted tips of Guy Fieri and the whatever the party shirt tell you that he wants to eat nachos. <laughs> I guess I mean? yeah, I know what you mean, but 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 ultimately what I do is going to be, you know, hopefully some sort of candid conversation with the person. So, and both of those guys in particular operate at, a, a, it's a different frequency, but they have an intensity that, that is pretty broad. I think Anthony bro- broader than, than Guy in terms of, you know, what he's chosen to take on with his, you know, pursuit of, of uh, uh, understanding the world through food and, and providing some um, crossover for, for Americans to, to see you know, the world and, and its conflicts through food and shrimp and booze. So, you know, but he's an interesting thing because I want to connect with people. 
You know, at the core of what I do is I need to connect with people. Yeah, I, I can understand the limitations of connecting. You know, like I, I know when, when I've hit the limit of someone's boundaries. But if there's no connection, it's going to be it's going to be a trouble for me. And whether or not they feel the connection or not, I don't know. That's not really, you know, uh, th- that's not my concern. Sometimes I can feel it, I think. But in the same but way. Part, that- part of the frisson of your show, I think, is that you while you want slash need to connect with people and in some way that is the premise of your show, the secondary part of it is that doing so is in some ways not something you're entirely comfortable with. Like uh, stand-up comedy is this kind of... Even though your stand-up comedy has always been so focused on how can I reveal something really revealing but then make you laugh about it, like that's I, I feel like when I, when I watch you do stand up, especially yeah. when it's not a, especially when it's not your absolute most polished set. Yeah. What you're doing is like almost a contest to yourself. Yeah. Of like, if I say this thing, can I make it funny? Right. But I, I feel Sometimes, like, yeah. But yeah. I feel like that is in the context of this very ritualized thing, which is stand up comedy. You have all the power. You can hold right. a microphone. Right. You know how to make. You're making people laugh. You're dominating right. them in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, comfortable because it has that context around it. Uh-huh. And on your show, I think part of what makes it interesting is that you are always fighting against an instinct to be a performer and have a comfortable distance because part of your show is and part of your life goal is make a connection. Right. I've, I've gotten better at that. And sometimes I'll try to entertain people. Like sometimes uh, I think with people, I'll try to charm people or, or be flirty or, or try to get laughs if I think it'll get get things going. But I've gotten very much better at listening. I still finish finish people's sentences sometimes or cut people off. But it's it's fairly dis- – I do it on purpose. It's like it evolved into something that it wasn't initially. Like, I needed to connect. It was part of my tools for connecting. But now I'll cut people off because I want to go somewhere else. Like, I kind of, like a lot of times I'll interrupt people because I've become somewhat instinctively savvy of public narrative. So, like, how do you get around a public narrative? It becomes very tricky. And, ha- and all I'm looking for in the podcast is not only connection, but to get the tone of the conversation into something organic and, and authentic. And usually it can happen – sometimes it won't happen to a half hour in. I'm not saying that first half hour is bad, but I, I feel when it gives way. And, and that is the experience I want people listening to have. That's when I get emails – if I get emails that are like, why didn't you ask about this or that? I can't believe you didn't talk about that. It's so it's not really that important to me. You know, maybe that's important to you, but you know, sometimes I'll be like, well, maybe I should have. But other times I'm like, I don't – if you know that information or that information is accessible, I don't mind people telling it to me in the way they're going to tell it to me. But what's better is – and what the and one of the things that this medium is powerful at is conveying tone, emotional tone. And something shifts when something gets candid or something or there's a little bit of emotional risk. You can you, you feel it in your whole body with audio. So why not spend time in that place to where it's sort of like loose and people are like, I'm just I can't believe they're talking about this. I'm just hanging out. Right. That, it, that intimacy is something that people are thrilled by. 
Yeah, and even if they don't know exactly what it is. Like, if I get a person that's done a million things and they don't talk about any of them, but it's a great conversation, to me, that's like a big win. That's interesting. I feel like when I read reviews of, uh, like, Hardwick's show, when I read, when I hear see people talking about Hardwick's yeah. show, Chris's show, and they're saying, and I listen to it, and I it, my public radio mind goes like, well, we didn't get any insights into how they make their things or whatever, you know, like we right. didn't get any whatever. And and I'm like, and I'm frustrated. I'm like, well, sure, Chris is charming and funny. Chris is always charming and funny. He's a talented guy. But then I hear what how people react to that, and they're like, oh, it's like I was right there with friends. I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, but if you want to take it, like, it's one thing just joking around or hanging out, you know, like a afternoon drive time, you know, that or morning drive time, you, you know, you can Which have you that. know what that is. I mean, I you, know, but you like hosted that's a I, morning radio show. Like what well, you do is a different type of well, morning I like, radio show, I like but you've do, been on 10,000 morning radio shows and you know. Right. What, but there's nothing bad about that. Right. But like when it's one on one. Like, I don't think that the, my conversations generally are, are, are casual. I think they're, they're, they're weighted. That, like, there, there is an engagement there. I'm looking for, you know, for something. I don't know if it's emotionally revealing, but, but lately, like, with actors and stuff, I'm a little more careful to talk about craft. Like, as opposed to talk about, like, I like to talk a little bit about the creative process with somebody. Because, like, if I had Walter Hill on recently, and I'm not going to get any affirmation from Walter Hill. He's not going to validate me. We're not going to be buddies. <laughs> but, you know, but he's been around a long time, and he does feel, he does something that he feels is you know, emotional important. It's like Roger Waters was on, and both of the, it's, these are not easy guys. But if you can get them to to shed a little of their guardedness for a second to say, well, you know, I, this, this is a thing that, that I feel strongly about and I, and I like doing. Not, not I have a point to make, but do you, you, want, you want me to tell you what, 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 is, what, what feels like what makes me feel? You know, there are those moments where – and they're, sometimes they're coded. You know, they're, it's through an event, but I can feel when it happens. Like I know when I'm I think it matters up. that you care too. Well, like, I definitely care. I think there's a kind of transaction that people like that are used to in an interview, which is you ask these kind of standardized questions to get standard answers because that will complete the project of I have to write this newspaper profile for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Right. I need these quotes. Right. Um, and that transaction is relatively simple. Have you like? Have you ever had, for example – um, I'm thinking of an interview I did many years ago. Um, but have you ever had Mark Oliver Everett from E from Eels? Yeah. So his publicist literally told me before the interview, she she was very nice, but she emailed me before the interview and said, just so you know, he's a very difficult interview. It doesn't, he's not comfortable in the interview setting. He won't want to do it, like whatever. Yeah. And I talked to him. And I found him to be perfectly lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but like I in in retrospect, I think the difference is I was there talking to him because I sincerely valued his thoughts about the things that he cared about most. And, you know, his art is what he cares. As you said, like for an artist, there's a profound emotional connection. There's a reason that they do the work that they do. Yeah. And and also and if you're like respectful and care. 
Oh, yeah, you just want, you're interested. Yeah. It's, it is really what it is. Whether you care or whether you're respectful, those are, you know, that's a positive. But interested, curious, like, you know, you're following something. That's what people, you know, when they ask me about interviewing, it's like the one thing that limits you in an interview is, is having questions. So, like, my, what I'm gambling on is that I'm going to get a sense of this person from Wikipedia or their work or I'm a fan or maybe I don't know anything about them. I'm going to interview someone today. I don't know much about her, uh, but it seemed like it's interesting. It seems interesting to me, and I'll try to you know get at something. And I feel insecure because you know her particular mode of um, of uh, creativity is not my bag. But but her backstory and 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 what she's gone through sounds interesting. So I'm seeking to to connect it's with the person. Hillary, it's Hillary Clinton. I know. Why should you mention it? It's Hillary Clinton. No, she's a wrestler. Yeah, uh, but. But the thing is, is like if you follow them, like, they, and it's a risk because sometimes you know they answer and then they're done. And you're like, well, this isn't rolling. But if if I stay on top of it and I find I keep finding the you know where the conversation is going in real time, then eventually it becomes one, and it, it, there's a, a nice give and take. But you have to be curious and interesting. Like there were two, like recently because I can't remember everything. But like Neil Young's another guy. He's a notoriously difficult interview. I didn't know that going in really. I liked you know I like Neil Young. I love Neil Young. But I you know I I listened to like four or five of his records out of the 90. Yeah. And, that, and then I get insecure, like I, I don't have the arc of his career. But the bottom line is he comes over and he's going to fuck with me because that's what Neil Young does. I was fortunate that he liked my house, he liked my guitar, he liked me before we got out to the garage, but he was still going to give me a run for the money. And it, wasn't, it didn't end up being an interview, but it, there were points about his life that came up in the midst of this sort of freewheeling conversation where I was making him laugh and he was having a good time talking about this or that. And then there were moments where, you know, his his sons did come up and, you know, some of the drug casualties did come up. The last waltz came up. But it wasn't because I had a list of questions. It was because I sensed in our fun little chat that I could drop that in and somehow find a connector. Because a lot of these guys who are that age, they don't want to talk about the past that much. They, because they think that what they're doing now is what's happening. And they don't want... I recently got the new... I got the new Ray Davies record that just came out, which is really good uh, and, and thoughtful and, and sort of uh, earnest and emotional. But he just talks about being a guy who people want your version of history. That's your responsibility if you've accomplished something and are now seen as somebody who accomplished something past tense, is that you know, people want to talk to you about that. And these guys get tired of that. So you, you sort of got to be sensitive to everyone's needs and you got to figure out you know, where it's going to go then, you know, what happens then. But the, what I was going to tell you before about, you know, things happening and, and having new realizations about people who do things like actors are not easy because they're actors and you don't know what they really are as people. I'm not saying they're bad people, but they not they might not be as interesting as their roles or whatever. You, you know, when I interviewed Cranston, Brian Cranston, I really wanted to interview Walter White. I mean, that, I really I didn't re- want to admit that to myself, but but he turned out to be very you know practical and pragmatic and kind of a, a working man approach right. to acting and he had a lot to say about the craft and how he approaches it but recently I had both uh, Anne Hathaway and um, I just talked to uh, Kevin Bacon and two things happened organically uh, with both of them that were similar that was very interesting to me you know like a lot of times like I'll go movie to movie if I like some of their movies you can't go all the movies but we're talking about a long career of work 
But I had these weird questions that, that started percolating in my head the day of each interview. And they both had similar answers, which was really sort of a, an interesting thing into what what they think is important. Like with Anne Hathaway in Brokeback Mountain, I just I just asked her, I said, did you have him killed? Her, you know, her husband, because it's not suggested, but you feel that. And she's like, well, I, you know, I, I that's a secret I'm going to bring to my grave. I'm like, what do, what do you what do you mean? No one's like that. That's the one. <laughs> And I'm like, well, did, were you given direction? And and she she said, well, all Ang Lee told me was that I, that she was a predator, but I made a choice. And then Kevin Bacon, weird thing, I, I had a similar reaction to a moment in the movie, the end of Mystic River, where he points at Sean Penn with the gun hand and pulls the trigger. I said, did that mean you were gonna you're gonna get him? And he's like, you know, it's interesting. Clint Eastwood's not a dire- actor's director, really, and he doesn't, you know, talk much or, you know, you don't have much time. But I did ask him about that, you know, and and he goes, well, look, it's in the book. It's in the script. The audience will, you know, it's on them. And then Kevin says, but I made a choice. And I'm like, all right, well, what was it? And he's like, I'm, I can't. I'm not going to. Like, this was the secret. And I said, I think I said something like, he goes, well, what do, what do you think? I think, I think you're going to get him. And he, he said something like, it was a very intuitive choice. But, but these are the things that they hold, you know, that, that, like that profession. To talk about acting is tricky, and I didn't know how to do it for years. But they do something. These people have a methodology. You know, I, they don't, you know, and it's not like, it doesn't come down to Stanislavski or something else. But it's about these choices. And these are the important moments. I mean, these are the moments. And the, and they 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 think about them, and it it is you know it's new to me and interesting to get to that point that those were the secrets. Yeah, it's hard. Interviewing actors can be pretty tough. Yeah, because it, relative to a musician or a writer or a director, they have less authorship in their work. They're they're sharing more of the authorship of their work. But I think it's interesting that you're pointing to the fact that what you can ask them about is the choices because they are making choices. Everything they do is making choices and that is expressing, you know, that is them making their own decisions about their creativity and that is where they are probably best revealed. Right. And writers are are harder. Writers are the hardest. Because they're bad at talking. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, I mean, it's just yeah, they the, can be. Yeah, it's it's, it's maybe difficult. that's why they became a writer. Directors can be great, but they're hard to get because when they have a job, it's for years. Right. But um, but the other point that I wanted to speak to that you brought up about you know them making sound bites on purpose or or their public narrative, a lot of them are guided uh, by you know publicity or, or repetition. But I think most of the time it's it's insulating. And depending on who the person is or what they want out in the world, you know, a lot of these people struggle to protect, you know, what little privacy is afforded almost anybody now. And a lot of times it's not that they're hiding something, but they want to they want to keep something for themselves and they don't want that to be available for, you know, this kind of feeding frenzy of, of media. Right. But but there are the ways around that is that. Some public narratives for, uh, that individuals have are very – they're deep and they're the, – the, like I have one where that – you know I know my story 
and some of them run pretty deep. And there's very and a lot of people who do a lot of press. There's very few things they haven't talked about that they've chosen to talk about, and they'll do it over and over again and, and mix it up a little bit. But but sometimes you can hear that tone again, that emotion around something that's not so loaded. You know, not some big information like yes, my father hit me. You know, that's a that's a, a piece of information. But if somebody's talking about you know their love of a sandwich, sometimes that can be the most revealing thing in an interview. We'll have more of my interview with Mark Marin after a quick break. I'm Hal Lublin. I'm Danielle Radford. I am Michael Eagle. And we are the hosts of Tights and Fights, Maximum Fun's newest podcast dedicated to all things wrestling. We'll be talking about Sasha Banks, the women's revolution, Sasha Banks, the brand split, and Sasha Banks' wigs. And we'll also be talking about wrestler fashion. Some wrestlers wear too many clothes. Some wrestlers don't wear enough clothes at all. And I'll be doing impressions of all your favorite wrestlers. New episodes Thursdays on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah, dig it. Tides and Bites Podcast. Tides and Bites. The Dead Pilot Society Podcast brings you hilarious comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Aubrey Plaza, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John Hodgman, Adam Scott, Molly Shannon, Busy Phillips, Tom Lennon, Anna Camp, Laurie Metcalf, Felicia Day, Michael Ian Black, Adam Savage, Paul Shear, Ben Schwartz, Skylar Aston, Mae Whitman, Josh Molina, Ben Feldman, Nicole Byer, Jason Ritter, Sarah Chalk, Steve Agee, Jane Levy, Allison Tolman, Danielle Nicolette, Casey Wilson, Anna Ortiz, Lorraine Newman, June Diane Raphael, Kieran Chipka, Ed Week, Zach Knight, and Carrie Kenny Silver, John Ross Bowie, Jamie Denbo, Janet Varney, and many more. Listen at MaximumFun.org, iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. Just to turn around, I'm talking with Mark Marin. Let's get back to the conversation. You've interviewed Terry Gross, and I'll interview her for this show. And she's someone who, for her, professionally, reveals very little about herself. That was hard. I'll tell you how I did that. I can Because that's a great example of, of what we're doing on this show. But like I feel like when she talks about movie hosts on TV in New Jersey, she like lights up. Like she'll say some someone will mention something right. about it, some interview guest. You know, it's maybe happened we've probably been listening to Fresh Air twenty years and you know, somebody'll mention something and she lights up and you think like, Wow, that is something that is completely incidental to the world, but of a genuine emotional key for her. Those are important things in conversation. Those are exciting. But like having the opportunity to interview her at, at her request in front of an audience of two thousand at the Brooklyn Academy of Music Opera House was sort of a big deal for me. It was some sort of festival, and they, they wanted her to be interviewed, but she wouldn't do it unless I did it. And it was a big, not responsibility, but it was a, a kind of a big event, big moment for me that the interviewer, the most respected interviewer, arguably, anywhere, you know, wants me to interview her. It was sort of like... Yeah, I was mad. Oh, were you? Yeah, of course. Oh. I have been turned down to interview her several times by then. Well, always I, very politely, and I understand she's has a I never tried to interview her. <laughs> you know, and I, it came sort of out of left field, you know? I mean, she'd interview me a couple of times, and I think I knew that she did like what I did, but, you know, it's a big deal as interviewers, right? So, 
But what happened that night was was really kind of beautiful because I like, would also say I was also glad it was you it's because okay. you do a wonderful you job mad. and you're my friend. It's all right. But I both of those it. things, I was I mad, it. but I, I want to be clear that I wasn't resentful of it. Well, I appreciate that, and I you know, and I would feel you know differently. I really am proud of that thing. Because, like you said, there's very little information out there about her. So what I had to do, which I, I don't love doing, is a type of research. I think I do this kind of research anyways. But with her, it was very specific because she's such a mysterious person. And all of us have had the experience of talking to her alone by ourselves you know, over a mic. And she's somewhere else. You know, People have been interviewed by her. But you look at the public narrative that's available and it's very little. I just so, I also want to make it clear if they need me to do that, I'm available as okay. well. Okay. And I yeah. and I and you know I'll, I have, I'll get, I haven't done it. So it's not quite all of us, but I am available to be on fresh if air. If they need me to be on fresh air, I'll be there. Okay. This is good. Yeah. I this, I'm, I'm so close to pushing some button that will make you really frightening. So <laughs> <laughs> but But I'm just telling you to address what we're talking about is that what I did specifically was I looked at what was available, and and it's limited uh, because she keeps a private life. But the chronology of her life had some very big holes in it. And I knew going in, like, that's where she became her, and this is where, you know, she – you know, there were these gaps. She started here. She did this. She did that. But it's like, what happened there? Where, you know, that was a, a weird time in the country. You know, was she kind of like a hippie? Was she out in the, you know, was she out in the world? What was she doing at that age? Just go dancing climate? and doing blow? Right. Well, it was a little before that. She's a right. little older than me. So, but the, the, the more beautiful thing about it is that, you know, the night that we have to go out there, it's a big audience. It's a big room. And, I, and I'm a comedian. And this is more about me than it is about her, is that. You know, she was sitting over there, and I'm sitting here, and there are people who love her. You know, and I'm here. Like, it was one of those nights where I really realized, like, I'm here to service Terry and to make this go well for her. And to, you know, pre- and to make sure she, you know, is okay during all this. Because she's not a live performer. Right. And she's... Uh, and because I think also... I mean, you're fully capable of doing it. You did a wonderful job. But because your normal context is a show that is in significant part about you. Right. And, and in my garage. Yeah. And you're recognizing, oh, I'm on Terry Gross's stage, not in my house. Well, right. Right. But, you know, but I've, I've gotten a little more gracious over time. Like, uh, <laughs> You're very gracious, yeah. Mark. But but the weird thing was is that they were, I wanted to keep it lively, but I didn't want to upstage her. I wanted the interview to be what I do and and to reveal things to you know me and to the audience that people didn't know about her, and uh, you know and I wanted her to feel good about it because there were moments on stage because I'm in awe of her and I, there's a lot of respect there and I'm doing these questions and it's happening the stuff that. The, the, the areas that I thought were interesting turned out to be interesting, and people really learned things about her that they didn't know. And, and, and I think you know, there was a couple points where she's like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to go there. And and she was in control to a degree, but she was still letting out things that the public didn't know. And there were moments there where I could have made a joke. Or I, like, I really made choices to to not upstage or 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 – or cut her off or take advantage of the audience that in a way that I could innately do and, and is, is my instinct. And I think I was just very proud of it. And, uh, and, and I think she had a great time. And I felt good that she had a great time because I know she doesn't like doing that. 
And, you know, we've, we communicate occasionally, and I have a picture of her and I on stage in, in my house, and apparently she has one in her office as well. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I talked to an NPR news host the other day for the show. Yeah. And one of the things that she told me, I asked her sincerely because I, I wondered about it. Like, is it hard to be the voice of NPR in the amount that you have to sublimate yourself and your own perspective on the world and your own uh, identity and ideas because you have to represent a sort of abstract news voice, you know. And um, to me, the, like this question is always pressing upon me, right? Like every time I step in the booth, I feel like I should be more NPR-y, but then I feel bad at it and that kind of thing. And she goes... Very sincerely and directly, she just said, no, it's easy. It's not about me. It's it's about the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am not an important part of the world. <laughs> but I think one of your, one of the things that you do very well is, I don't, I, when I, I don't want to say make it about you, but like, for example. I definitely do sometimes. But like that thing that we were talking about, that idea of like challenging someone with your idea of who they are. Like, that is a way of using your ideas and your experience to open up the box of another person by kind of laying it out there and saying, what do you do with that? Well, that, but that's, that's my whole thing, really. And that I, it's very hard for me. I've, I've grown self-conscious about making it about me when I am because sometimes – because I know – People probably me. bitch at you about it, right? Not really. But you know, they, uh, there's very little bitching. Occasionally, if someone's new to the show, they'll be like, why didn't you – why would you cut them off? Or why do you say, yeah, 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 right, right. They right. bitch at me about it a lot. Yeah, well, cutting people I, off? Yeah, I do it less than you. I mean, I literally just did. I know it, but... when I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like because there's a gap there. Like because like some people, it's like you need to, you know, they'll keep. You want to. It's almost like a, a, a rope a dope thing, in a way. It's sort of like yeah, okay, I know that. Like I know, like I don't mind again, you know, having information told to me that is out there. But let's keep let's keep turning a corner, you know. So a lot of times I'm like and. Eh, eh. But but the thing about making it about me is that, granted, they're in my house. But, like, if, if I sit down and I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with this, you know, my car did the thing. You, you know that? And that's another thing about turning the mics on is that if I come into the garage with my day and I put it out there, then whatever they thought was going to happen is not happening. They're like, well, this guy's got a problem with his car. And either they're going to be like, oh, man, well, sorry to hear that. Or like, oh, I had... The same thing happened in my car, and then it's like now we're already in the area that we need to be in tonally. You know, you're engaging with me, so that's what making it about you does. It makes, and I think, as I said before, I think that the first hundred episodes or so of my show were inviting famous people over to help me with my problems. I and I don't regret that because that's what how the thing evolved. Well, I think you also. I think it's really interesting that you are really aware of um, the idea of people's public narrative. I mean, it's hard to sit in this chair that I'm sitting in the interviewer's chair and not be aware of that because you hear it every day. You hear right. people trying to feed it to you every day, whether for good reasons or ill. But they can't hold it for an hour, man. <laughs> hour and change is going to break down. Usually at about 20, 25 minutes. But, like, of all the people, of all the performers uh, I know, 
and like. Actually, I would say probably the two who are most actively in control of their own public narratives are you and Hardwick. <laughs> like they're very. He's doing different. a lot more than me. He's got they, a much. Broad... Bo- you both are very. You both are very successful. Um, but and you're both great stand-up comedians. Really funny. Uh, two guys that I really like. Um, but like one of the things that Chris did when he chose to be the guy he was, he became. That made him, that took him from another funny stand up comedian at the M bar to a f- guy that's famous and hosts television shows. Is famous he's like, host. Yeah, is he's like, I'm going to take this piece of my story in my life that is real, that is, it has a nice arc to it, it's got a thing you can tell people about, it's easy to understand, and I'm going to make that. My public face. He's extremely disciplined about that. I have no discipline. Well, you, but I, here's the thing. Like, you also have this story that you've been telling about yourself since you started the show, since you started WTF, which is, uh, I, you know, I, I had just gone through a divorce. My career was yeah. in the shitter. I needed to put my life back together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I did it all in my you know, in my apartment or, the, or in my garage with the cats and the, you know, yeah. there's like these eight pieces of story that people tell me about you. And I'm I, like, yeah, I know Mark in real life. It's less than, it's less now. Like, I don't like, you know, you know, it's like, it's got the difference, if I could, and I understand what you're getting at and I'm cutting yeah. you off, is that, like, I think that what Chris did was he made a business plan based on branding that was empire building that you know his narrative of at least became empire building yeah no i think it was from the beginning i i think that it was definitely a business plan he was based sitting on branding around from the beginning. yeah right he was sitting around reading seth godin books or whoever <laughs> and uh you know he he's like this is you know i'm this is how this is i'm this is what i'm building right so the the nerd narrative or the nerdist narrative and then framing you know his sobriety or what have you and in you know in reconfiguring you know his it, it's just you know like I'm, I'm i'm being diplomatic but I, I think there was a lot more foresight in what he was doing in my public narrative right. it just is what it is and he's living a much larger life than me i think my big fault there's no doubt that he chose those things like all those things are real parts of his life they're not inauthentic or phony but they are definitely things that he chose and planned but, but you're this- saying that you that you sort of fell into it in a way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I never really had a plan, and that's why, you know, he's now, he, 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 well, I, I don't want to compare <laughs> You're myself. You're also extremely successful, Mark. No, no, I do good, and I'm happy yeah. with where I'm at. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that, like, I could not do right. what he did because I don't want to. It, is that, you know, like, my big fault is, my personal narrative, however I started, is that I don't change my life much. And 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 the thing I wrestle with is, like, why am I not doing that? Like, why am I still in that house? Why, why, why can't I, you know, kind of, like, settle down into something? When am I going to learn how to enjoy my life or spend my money or whatever? You know, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. The I, you enjoy know. my life part sounds – I mean, like, part of what I wonder about your story is if – your story is so clear and coherent, partly because it was the story you were telling yourself. Like, you were a very successful stand-up comic at the time. I mean, I understand when? the challenges. When? When you started WTF. No way. No way. Was not. 
in any way a successful stand-up comic. I was You'd not, appeared on The Sound of Young America on multiple occasions. No, the, the bottom line was is that the realizations one has about working in this business and understanding it doesn't happen till later. You, you know, like, yeah, I, uh, yeah, Conan had me on a lot, uh, you know, three, four times a year. You know, I did have opportunities. I made records. I did specials. But I could not sell a fucking ticket. And, you know, I did not have representation. Uh, the, you, know, I, you know, the difference between public perception and what's really happening in anyone's career can be pretty vast, is that it, it just was not materializing into anything. So on top of being broke, you know, Although people knew me and comics respected me a, a bit and I was my own thing, there, it, was not, it was not a business. And, and there was just no, and it, it, it wasn't going to become one. So accepting that you know, things weren't working out was a big part of, of doing what I did because there was no business model. I just need to keep working. But that's part of the public narrative. But, but the, the thing about somebody like Chris is that, look, hosting is a job that someone can do in show business. I think I always found, and this is not to discredit him because he'll own it, is that, you know, and I've said it to his face, you know, you're like the nerd Ryan Seacrest. And that's exactly who he wants to be. Yeah, that is great, the model. he's great at it. Yeah, it's, it's, that's the job. He wants to, to host everything. He's going to host the apocalypse. He might be doing it. And he's a really great host as well. I mean, yeah, like, no, I, so, I mean not... Ryan Seacrest is also a really great host, but I would say Ryan Seacrest more of a cipher than Chris is. I don't know about that, but <laughs> but it's fine. The, the thing is, is that, you know, for me and the, the primary difference for me is like maybe I don't grow as quickly. Maybe I can't. I'm not as disciplined or I don't have the same level of ambition. But for me, like doing the things that I do in some weird way, stand up. You, you know, and um, and WTF are are just saving my life. It was. It's never been a business proposition. The fact that you know uh, my business partner and producer Brendan McDonald and and I have sort of you know become entrepreneurs was a, a it was a great cosmic fluke that you know because we started podcasting, no one can make money at it, and the business evolved along with us. I think it probably helped a lot. Speaking of Brendan. That Brendan, who's a really practical guy, oh, I mean, yeah. he's not the kind of like, um, you know, I think, you know, uh, like Chris and his manager probably made a plan at some point because his management company invented the blue collar comedy tour. You know what I mean? But I don't know if he's still with that manager. But I met him one time. He was a nice guy. Um, but like, I, I don't know if you and Brendan sat down and made a plan, but you did have someone who wasn't you who had a little bit of perspective on the situation in Brendan and was very practical and is very practical and a sensible dude who could guide it in a practical direction uh, when you were not feeling when you were not in a practical mood. You oh, know no, I mean? no. He's definitely had me in his head for over a decade. And it's it's more than just practical. He is a, a, a meticulous, you know, overworking dude. Like he's a perfectionist. And, and what ultimately started to happen in the relationship as a producer, you know, he knew who I was and he knows how to handle me, you know, but in a lot of ways, you know, we keep it mostly professional. Um, you know, we're not up each other's asses, you know, life wise. 
Does he, he's, he still doesn't live in L.A. No, he's in Brooklyn. Yeah. But but the thing is, is when I need him to be a producer, he'll be it. Like, you know, I don't know what to do with this person. You know, where am I going to go with that? Like, like you know, he still asks, you know, if I have fundamental questions about arcs and about, you know, how to frame something. He's also the smartest guy I know. He's a, he's a great kind of cultural critic. And, you know, he's very – somehow or another, he takes in everything and can process things. And he's been fundamental, you know, since we did Political Talk Radio in 2004 to making me understand things and to frame things, you know, sometimes that I don't get. If I don't see an arc or I don't see, like, the big picture of something, you know, he'll he'll just plant it in my head. And then it's like simpatico because I'm like, oh, of course. And then it just opens up in my mind. And we have that kind of dynamic. Like, sometimes because I'm so anxious and aggravated that I don't engage my my very good brain properly. And sometimes he'll just sort of like, well, what about this? And I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, got it. And that's how that works. What do you ask people about when you are at a loss? It's it's a horrible feeling because usually what that means is that they've stopped talking and the conversation is not rolling and I've got to scramble. So sometimes I'll do something to buy my time based on what we were just talking about. Like, but what, but, but when you did that, didn't you like, or I'll press something, but it's really just trying to, to buy time, you know, when to press something. You know, I think when it. you're in radio, what you do in that moment often, uh, and it's something that I all basically never do live in the interview anymore, even though people always ask me to do it live is you do a reset. So you just, oh, yeah. I'm you talking have with, a piece uh, of, I'm Jesse talking with Thorne. so-and-so, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. No resets. Like now I do those afterwards because I think it's weird yeah, yeah, to yeah, do yeah. it in the middle. You don't have to do it in the middle. Yeah, but usually I'll just like, okay, so when you did this, or I'll change subjects, what about, like, you know, I do have a head full of stuff I want to ask them about, but if there's, if they're, they're rough, like, you don't know when it's going to give, man. Like, you know, thank God I had a clown painting in my house when John C. Riley came over, because he came over, he's like, I don't like talking about myself. I'm like, great. And then he brought, you know, he said, what's that clown painting about? And it turns out he loves clowns and knows a lot about them. He's fascinated with him. So I talked to him about clowns for 20 minutes. Roseanne, or not Roseanne, uh, Patricia Arquette didn't seem to really know the show. And she was kind of like, okay, what do you got? That thing is difficult. If they come over on a junket and they're like, okay, I'm do your thing. Yeah. And something gave around, you know, women about to, like something just like you just keep like throwing things out to see what lights them up. And then if they get lit up, you're like, OK, here we go. So it, it's usually just, you know, uh, scrambling. But like it, it's weird when it happens because like I don't have the plan, the follow up plan, you know, and sometimes they feel that and they're sort of like, oh, OK, oh, I'll tell you a thing like Kevin Bacon. You know, because of Bill Paxton, you, you know, passing, you know, we ended up talking about Apollo 13 and about going up in that plane. That, the, the vomit comet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And about working with Bill. and But, like, there were moments where, you know, he was done talking and I'm like, all right. But with those people, you've always got the, you know, the their, their, their work. Like, if you're talking to somebody, like, it's very hard to talk to people who are 28. You're going to tap out. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm very aware of that. Yeah, people always ask me why I don't have more up and comers on my show. It's like, well, what? Yeah, I want to talk to them about stuff they've made. I would love. To, I love interviewing sixty-seven year olds because they have a shit. They made so much different stuff. I can ask about. Well, that's what you always go to in those moments. Is is sort of like you know, if they have a history, you can bounce around with that. 
Do you have a do you have things in your head? Like do you have bullet points in your head or on a piece of paper? Sometimes, like sometimes I'll I'll write them as I'm going of things to come back to. And sometimes I'll write bullet points if the people have a long career that I want to make sure that I cover. Um, sometimes I'll just have their discography or their filmography in front of me so, like, I can spark things in the moment. And sometimes I, I don't know how that – it might sound a little ridiculous. But, like, I, there are moments where I'm like, oh, that part that where you did – like, that seemed like it would have been difficult. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of acting in the moment – Sometimes I feel like I could have Orson Welles on and I would accidentally spend the entire time talking about F for fake. Oh, yeah. Because like I, really, yeah, I really love F for fake, but like no one else gives a shit about I mean, there's other people. Other people give a shit about it, but a very small number of Americans. I saw that when I was in high school. Yeah, it's the, it's the greatest. But like I could accidentally talk for an hour with him about F for fake and then be like, oh, shit. I was supposed to talk about Citizen Kane, part of that. Yeah. Then people were like, well, you never even brought up Citizen Kane once, the greatest movie of all time. You're like, oh, geez, sorry. Well, but yeah, but you if could I say don't sorry, have a, but, but... If the, I don't have, like, a list of things. But there's also the element of sort of like, well, isn't there enough of that out there? Yeah. You know, like, a lot of times people, like, they want answers that are already out there. Their conception of an interview is in formation. It's information only. And, you know, I kind of push against that. It's like an essay that they're writing through research. Can't believe you didn't do this. I'm like, why? It wasn't important to me. You know what I mean? It's like I, I, I'm sort of surprised at how limited my intake of certain people's work is. But I know their work and I, and I feel confident in it. But like, if you I'm, often don't know their work, that was the first thing you said when me and Hodgman went into your <laughs> went into your no, office I know, and a I had that with, the, with Louis Theroux, yeah, Louis Theroux. Um, but sometimes it's like whether it's an excuse or rational, rationalization or not, I still believe that the times where I don't know someone's work and I don't freak out about it, the people that know their work really well are going to get something they've never heard before, as opposed to reaffirmation of the what the the shit they already know. The nerds are always the enemy for sometimes sometimes with that stuff. If they if you've got real super fans of somebody, you know you can't meet their expectations unless you talk about something completely different than what they know about. So that's that's my format, and as opposed to worrying about the back of the room, find something interesting. That is, you know, because I don't know anything that they know. I feel like I have that experience sometimes when I'm interviewing uh, rock and roll people. Mm -hmm. Like, as you know, Mm because you're my friend, I don't care that much about rock music Mm -hmm. personally. Um, Like, I'm not against it or anything. And Mm -hmm. I have rock records and enjoy them. Yeah. But it's not the thing that I really love. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that works out fine for that reason that I just want to know about some... It makes me more comfortable being dumb and makes me more humble and also makes me more human in that I am interested. I don't need to know what kind of amp they use. I want to know something about them as a person because that's something that we both are. <laughs> right. And I, and also people at different ages or different like, you know, like with the Tom York interview I did. They, like that's a lucky circumstance because he doesn't do much. And – and like I didn't, I didn't, I had assumptions about him that he would be difficult, and he may be. But the the setup for that was I was going to travel, and I was going to go to um, Rick Rubin's Houdini House Studios over in Laurel Canyon, and and Flea and York were working 
on Adams for Peace, which is a record they did together. And the idea was I was going to interview both of them. Now, the thing that me and Brendan can do now, we have the freedom to do, is we've integrated short interviews into the shows. We, we can do a 20-minute interview with somebody, especially if they're a friend of the show, and, and add it to the, you know, as pre- a preface to the longer right. interview. Like, we've opened that up. So there's no time range on things anymore. If something doesn't pan out, we'll pair it with something. Right. Um, but like, I didn't know how that would go with two of them. Flea to me felt like he might, you know, bounce around a lot and, and it's going to be weird, but I get there and Flea's ill. So it's just me and Tom and I'm like, what? And you know, I like Radiohead as much as the next guy. Right. But some of the records, some people Radiohead is everything in the entire but world. I've, too. I've listened to the shit out of some Radiohead records, right? But like you know, I don't know like their tour schedule or what they play at a given night or whatever. But the but the issue was is like, what am I going to do with this guy? And you know, he started talking about politics, and you know, he's British, and you know, I you know, he's a lefty, and I you know, I've done my share of that. So we kind of just started talking casually about politics, and it 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 he trust, trusted me, and he liked where I was coming from. And then he was willing, and with British people, that's it's not always the case to sort of, you know, talk about his childhood and to move through things. And and just because of that weird moment where Flea wasn't there, and we just got off talking about politics, which was not the plan, you know, I got sort of this rare interview with that guy. You're a you're a worried guy sometimes. Do you feel like you are at the point, having done this hundreds of times, that you don't worry about it ahead of time that much? No, I'm always worried because, like, I and it's never really changed. It's sort of like, you know, what am I going to do with this person? And like, then on the other side of that, I'm like, oh, I think I'm tired of talking to people. <laughs> but, but it's never been different. You know, like, I, I sometimes I wonder why I'm talking to the people I'm talking to because. You know, we have bookers now, and I say, like, okay, yeah, sure, let's try that. Like, yeah, I think I'd be interested in that. And then, like, I'm like, what am I doing? But then that makes it human. Then it's sort of like I, I every one of my interviews is like a first date. I was so worried about Elvis Costello <laughs> because I don't care about Elvis Costello. I have immense respect for him, and I enjoy his music as much as the next person. Maybe slightly less than the next person, but yeah. like I don't, I don't dislike Elvis I was Costello worried at about all. Doing it too, but like he's kind of a weird guy, and kind of a spiky guy, not a weird guy in interview context. He doesn't, he's not super into it. And then I was thinking about like all my friends for whom it's the most important yeah. thing in the world. I was like, I don't want to let these people down. Exactly. You know, like Jordan, my co-host on Jordan Jesse yeah. Go, yeah. one of my best friends in the world. Like yeah. Elvis Costello is probably one of his top three favorite musicians of all time. Yeah. You know? And and so I'm worrying about it. that's like the top thing that I worry about that and actors yeah but then I w- I was able to say uh, you know what he's a just a he's a guy you've interviewed a lot of people just be interested in what kind of guy he is and it'll be fine yeah well with him the like the, the, what I've it was did, great he was a lot of fun yeah he's what just I, a really funny guy and. What I didn't say really is that like there usually there's like with the people that I want to talk to, there's something they did that like I'm that is great to me. And there there are things that I want to know about that thing that had that impact on my life. Or at least there's like a thread you want to pull on. I mean, when I was on the show the first time, we didn't talk about me at all. We just talked about our discomfort with nerds. Right, right. 
But but you like, were you right. were thinking that I could just explain nerds to you? Yeah. Well, I was interested. Right. A thread. Like yeah. with Kevin. Like you know, Diner was a big movie for me, an important movie for me. And with like Walter Hill, the fact that he wrote the original Getaway with Steve McQueen, and that you know he came up in the old day. In that with Elvis Costello, you, you know there was a, a couple records there that were hugely important to me, and I was curious about his relationship with Burt Backrack and 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 New Orleans. Like, but he got all jacked up on espresso. He walked into my house and he saw like the my. Espresso machine that I had to make. I have a pole. Yeah. I, he's like, "What is that?" And I'm like, "It's an espresso machine." He's like, "Oh, let's do that." And I and it was weird because we only had an hour, and he was jacked. So I got like two hours worth of stuff in, <laughs> in 47 minutes. But but that's the other thing that that like with Neil Young, that there's something about how do you make music? Like his essential records really float above time. They're they don't they're not dated. So what is that magic? So there is like with the people that I'm into talking to that I have an inherent fascination uh, usually about a couple of things that they've done and and that propels me a lot of times. How do you feel when you interview people that you don't know about? I, I feel a little like like I have to like there's most people I don't know about and sometimes, you know, like Brendan, like he'll like sometimes he'll go look and see if someone's done interviews somewhere and right. he'll be like, yeah, they can talk. Right. <laughs> so so sometimes that's all I need to know. Like, yeah, yeah, they can they, they can talk. And I'm I like, check okay. that. We check that sometimes, too, when I'm not sure. Yeah. It's like, uh, can they talk? Yeah. Uh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Werner Herzog was that wasn't easy for me. You just interviewed him. Yeah. He decided that he was going to uh, uh, have or, or, or disagree with everything I say. Who <laughs> he's good at that too. Yeah, but there was a couple of moments that were beautiful. If I can get ten beautiful moments, ten a, minutes, yeah. not ten moments, ten minutes of yeah. like, wow, it was right there. That was it. That was the ten minutes. Did we have we had that? Sadly, it was probably about Hardwick. <laughs> Well, Mark, you should know that I love you and Chris Hardwick. Yeah, I know. That's your problem. (laughs) (laughs) You're both great. I like Chris. I'm happy he's getting everything he wants. I hope that's enough for him. (laughs) It won't be. I I worry for him. (laughs) That's the problem with making that kind of plan. Uh, What do you do once the plan has been executed? (laughs) Got to wake up and... Naked like you'll, everyone else. You'll always have a loose tooth to wiggle, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark. Mm-hmm. I guess I will. <laughs> Sometimes I have a mouthful of them. Well, Mark, thank you for taking all this time to do this. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. I'm sweaty. Mark Marin. Let me turn around. His podcast is called WTF. He's also one of the stars of a new Netflix series called Glow. So you can watch him act in that. You've been listening to The Turnaround. If you like this show, tell a friend, subscribe, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts, share one of our interviews on social media, send somebody an email to tell them that you liked it, Uh, send someone a handwritten note, like a perfumed handwritten note that says they should listen to this interview podcast where an interviewer interviews interviewers about interviews. Um, Maybe they'll subscribe. That's That's our whole marketing budget, folks. 
You can always visit MaximumFun.org to listen to our shows or grab them in your favorite podcatcher. There are also text versions of our interviews on the Columbia Journalism Reviews website at CJR.org. They've got edited transcripts of everything for easy sharing. CJR is a co-presenter of this show. Their mission is to encourage excellence in journalism in the service of a free society. Amazing organization. They do amazing work. You can find it all at CJR.org, including their podcast, which is called The Kicker. All of the turnarounds music is provided to us by Mobius Van Chalkstraw. You can check him out at chopsmusic.com. The creator of the turnaround is me, Jesse Thorne. Our producers are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer here at Maximum Fun is Laura Swisher. Our managing director, Bikram Chatterjee. Special thanks to Kyle Pope, Emily Erskine, and Daryl Frost for making this show a reality. We'll catch you next time on The Turnaround. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.